0: Hello and welcome to The Two View, the cutting edge educational and interactive show for nurse practitioners and physician assistants, associates (laughs) in emergency medicine and urgent care. Can I say physician assistant today? We'll get to that. I'm nurse practitioner Martha Roberts.
1: And I am PA Mike Sharma.
0: Thanks for tuning in. We've got some great stuff to start out with for today, and we plan on ending with something a little controversial. And we're going to begin first by talking shop with a segment on the new IDSA guidelines for Lyme disease, and then transition to a fascinating segment on gastroparesis with some highlights you may not know about. After that, Mike is going to talk about a case about the spiked helmet sign, and we will end the segments with a discussion on side gigs and jobs, everything from building your own hospital to teaching, consulting, and maybe even dabbling in some watercolor art. More on that later. Finally, our faculty partner, amazing PA and friend, Randy Danielson, will be here guest hosting, and we are going to talk about some very controversial conversations, maybe some tweets, some personal organizational statements, and some physician opinions in regards to advanced practice providers and PAs, including the PA name change. Um, Mike and Randy are going to bring that to us at the end of the show, but stay tuned. We're going to start by covering these great clinical uh, medicine topics.
1: Well, let's start off by Lyme disease. Okay. We've both lived in some points in our professional career in Lyme endemic areas. What's your tick experience, Martha?
0: Well, those little blood sucking devils is what I like to call them. I lived in rural Vermont and Massachusetts for several years, and the tick illnesses in that area were overwhelming, both in humans and in pets. A Lyme titer was often added to those patients. We just couldn't figure out their diagnosis. There were all kinds of treatment suggestions, depending on who was the hospitalist that day and infectious disease. We gave out a lot of doxy, and I saw multiple complications related to the disease, and Who knows how many went undiagnosed in our community because sometimes it's hard to diagnose and uh, make that obvious uh, treatment. So it was not easy. I don't miss that part of my rural medicine gig.
1: Yeah, my first job as a PA was in upstate New York, also a Lyme endemic area. And I don't think I ever treated a Lyme disease case in four years that I was there Fast forward five years after I leave New York, uh, I used to work in an airport urgent care in Dallas behind airport security, first clinician in the world, by the way, to do that. And I pulled a tick off somebody in a Texas airport. So contrary to popular belief, ticks can fly. They just usually sit in coach like the rest of us. Even though you may not live in a Lyme endemic area, you may still have to deal with a possibility of Lyme disease, maybe not in an airport, but other places.
0: All right. So let's talk... General concepts first before we dive into the guidelines. Lyme disease is caused by the bacteria Borrelia borgdorferi that is carried by the black legged tick, also known as Ixodes tick. Humans catch Lyme disease by being bitten by an infected tick, and usually after the tick has been embedded for 36 hours or more. Lyme disease is challenging to diagnose and treat because, number one, Best testing methods and test results for Lyme are not always clear cut. And number two, Lyme disease can affect different body systems in weird, nonspecific ways. And number three, thanks to one and two, there are lots of controversies and anxieties about when and how someone should be treated for Lyme.
1: And let's not forget, Lyme disease is not the only tick-borne illness out there. Um, Having a plan to just throw somebody on Doxy, just in case, is ignoring the harms that we all know that drive general antibiotic stewardship practices. We want to avoid resistance in the population, sure, but guess what? Antibiotics, even when they're needed, do harm people, things like anaphylaxis and C. diff. Let's go over some of the 2020 Guidelines for Prevention, Diagnosis, and Treatment of Lyme Disease, published in the Clinical Infectious Diseases Journal in November 2020. These are joint guidelines between IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, the American Academy of Neurology, and the American College of Rheumatology.
0: Okay, we'll skip over the parts about wearing proper clothing and bug repellent and start where we as emergency medicine clinicians usually get involved. Someone coming in from uh, the outside with a tick embedded in them, somewhere on their insides, right? So first step, you can try to get the tick out. Use fine tweezers or other, you know, device that's used to grasp that tick, close to the skin as possible use firm traction to pull it out and there's lots of supposed tricks out there to make ticks let go and none of them are really recommended by the IDSA applying chemicals are damaging to the skin um, not necessarily damaging to the tick it could make the tick regurgitate actually and increase the risk of disease transmission.
1: Ticks are gross enough, but a vomiting tick? I think I would basically quit emergency medicine at that point. Like, find a nice radiology gig somewhere, you know?
0: <laughs> well... Save that for our side gig segment at the end here, but as long as the tick was removed within 36 hours of embedding, the patient is probably good to go and is low risk for Lyme. This is based on multiple animal studies that showed no transmission of Lyme under 24 hours and models that suggested further that no disease was transmitted under 36 to 40 hours. The majority of animals were infected 48 hours plus later.
1: Right. Okay. The tick's out. The next question is what kind of tests and treatment, if any, should be done immediately before any symptoms show up? The guidelines suggest setting the tick off for identification. A lot of commercial labs and even some public health departments should be able to do this sort of thing, but not testing the actual tick. For Lyme disease, uh, confirming the species of the tick can help us to know what to look out for. Uh, you know, Again, the Ixodes ticks are the ones that transmit Lyme. Other ticks do other stuff here. But testing the tick itself is shown to be a very poor predictor on whether the human actually gets Lyme, even in our Lyme hotspots. Modeling suggests that only less than 5% of people who are unlucky enough to get bitten by a tick actually get Lyme disease. So that's kind of good news there and great to tell your patient as well. Hey, less than 5%, okay? In addition, the patient should not immediately, right after the tick is pulled out, be tested for antibodies against Lyme. These take time for the body, obviously, to develop. Martha, when it comes to who gets prophylactic, doxy, or other treatments after a tick bite here, the guidelines have certain criteria, three criteria that they say the patients must meet as far as all of them before getting antibiotics. What are those three criteria?
0: Number one, the tick bite is from an identified Ixodes tick. Number two, it occurred in a highly endemic area, and that would generally be New England, which I can tell you is a hotspot from personal experience, the northern Midwest states, and northern California. But there are little Lyme endemic pockets, so check our show notes where we have a map from the cdc where you can really check your area of concern and number three the tick was attached for greater than 36 hours
1: right it is saying you've got to meet all three of those to qualify so to speak to, to meet guidelines to get prophylactic treatment now for adults for kids even Doxy is the medication you give. Doxycycline is a one-time dose in this situation. Studies have shown it's not going to stain the kid's teeth like we were all kind of warned about. That's from tetracycline, like the original tetracycline antibiotic. Doxy is a derivative. It is not shown to stain the teeth, so go for it. In adults, it's a 200 milligram one-time dose. In children, you're dosing 4.4 milligrams per kilogram per kilogram don't go over the adult dose, but that's what you give. Consider a different medication if the patient is breastfeeding, pregnant, or of course allergic to doxy. A 10-day course of penicillin would be a way to go in that situation.
0: Okay, let's talk erythema migraines next. There's a lot of confusion about what this is. What it's not is the itchy rash that you might get at the site of where the tick actually bit you. And it's also not any other insect bite, okay? This is a specific patch of redness that could appear anywhere on the body after you've been bitten by the tick that's infected with Lyme. And what's interesting is that some people do get the bullseye around where the tick bit them. Uh, but a lot of times this bullseye Red rash uh, that again is not itchy doesn't really bother anybody could show up anywhere else on the body, and over half of erythema migraine sufferers in the U.S. will also have constitutional symptoms like fever, myalgias, joint AIDS, et etc.
1: Well, this is clearly a time to do something. But what do the guidelines recommend? Testing first, treatment first?
0: Yeah, good question. So the the guidelines have a strong recommendation with moderate quality evidence that you diagnose erythema migraines clinically in patients with potential tick exposure in Lyme disease endemic areas. These folks still should get tested as you are treating them, and most widely available testing is the antibody testing. Recommendations here are testing for antibodies at time of presentation, which is considered acute phase testing, and then testing again two to three weeks later, which is considered convalescent phase testing if the first test was negative for Lyme antibodies. Traditionally, the first test was an Elijah test, and that stands for enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, also known as an EIA test. And then the second test was the Western blot. And the guidelines don't get into specifics on which exact antibody test you should run. The exact type of test is subject to change as tech evolved. So they probably didn't want to pin themselves down exactly which test to do, but it's some sort of antibody testing. Okay.
1: Right. The reason for clinically diagnosing Lyme at this point before testing is that, again, it's still kind of early in the disease. We haven't made antibodies yet. So nothing to pick up. A lot of times that first test is negative for antibodies, even when that erythema migraines rash is there. There are other tests that could be done that might turn positive you could like do a punch biopsy or even a blood test to do like pcr or culturing for the actual borrelia burgdorferi bacteria itself but i mean that's hard to do with regards to like doing a punch biopsy finding a lab that you know will do the right test the length of time required for if we're doing cultures that takes a long time so like it, unless you know for sure in your area that those things can be done in a time-sensitive manner here, probably the traditional two-phase testing is the right way to go.
0: Yeah, and as far as uh, what we do for treatment, we all know that the classic one, like we said, um, was doxycycline for 10 days, but oral amoxicillin or uh, cefiroxime for 14 days are also noted to have comparable efficacy for treating Lyme at the stage. A seven-day course of azithromycin is also suggested, it had comparable effect to other antibiotics for Lyme in all studies performed except for one. More discussion on that and full guidelines you can get to by clicking on the links in our uh, show notes, which again, we'll give you at the end, but it's 2
1: Well, speaking of those guidelines, they also talk about things like diagnosis and treatment of neurologic Lyme, Lyme carditis, Lyme arthritis, but I think we can leave those for self-study to any of you who want to dig in that deep.
0: Okay, I'm going to change gears now and discuss a topic that we see on a weekly, if not daily basis, and that's gastroparesis. Mm. The first couple of things that I'd like to say about gastroparesis is that it's not uh, very straightforward sometimes. It's easy to get frustrated with these patients. Imagine what it's like for them, but sometimes it's hard to know if we need to dig deeper for more concerning issues or or do advanced imaging or testing. But oftentimes, if we don't get results, as in the patient turns the corner, stops vomiting, has pain relief, uh, while ruling out these other life-threatening issues, in a few hours in our ER, patients are going to be admitted. And for a frequent flyer who often gets admitted, rehydration and close electrolyte monitoring may be of great value to prevent them from just bouncing right back to the ER either hours later, the next day, or worse, they go home, they fall from their hypotension or cardiac arrhythmia, have an electrolyte imbalance, and then they die, which would be very bad.
1: Yeah, generally uh, discharging a patient home for them to die unless they're on hospice is frowned upon.
0: Right. Sometimes I feel like we try so hard to treat and hydrate these patients in the ER so they can go home. And we push so hard for them to leave. We want them out. And they want to go home too. I know they do. In the end, I feel like we can just slam dunk admit them because they have real problems and real issues that we aren't going to fix in just a few hours. And it's a bad disease. And Mike, have you ever felt the pressure to just tune them up and get them out of your department?
1: Like you said, these folks are often familiar faces and it's the same complaint every time. Their belly hurts and they're nauseous and vomiting and it's the same thing as the last time they were. So yeah, I think in general, like the the, uh, EM clinician response to, if you want to say those kind of patients, I feel awkward saying those kinds of patients. But when it's a repetitive complaint, I think the general response is, yeah, let's get them out of here. Let's hydrate them, get them out of here. But I, I think that's really prescient of you to say is that like, hey, look, Because these guys are so hard to manage, maybe we should work on more of an admission mindset.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, so let's go a bit deeper into the history, presentation, workup, and treatment for patients with gastroparesis. So let's take a step back and dissect a little about what gastroparesis is and how we can go about the workup and management. It essentially means, gastroparesis itself, partial paralysis of the stomach or delayed emptying. It's a disease where the stomach cannot empty itself or food in a normal way, and there's a combination of damaged nerves and muscles which don't function to their normal strength and coordination, slowing the movement of contents through the digestive system, and patients will get nauseated, they'll have pain, and this can happen even if they just eat a small amount of food.
1: Well, gastroparesis demonstrates a gender bias affecting more women than men.
0: How dare it? I mean, really? (laughs)
1: It's 2021 gastroparesis. Come on. Okay. <laughs> uh, approximately 80% of these idiopathic cases are women. Uh, this gastroparesis, we don't know the source of it, may be linked to uh, maybe an autoimmune disease in the gut. That's a possibility. Um, there's a big tie, of course, to type 1 diabetics. Uh, up to 50% of them can have gastroparesis and gastroparesis. In type 2 diabetics, also between 30 to 50%, a lot of them are affected by this eventually. You know, post-surgical gastroparesis is another um, possibility here. Sometimes the vagus nerve gets dinged uh, or entrapped following some sort of upper GI surgery, like a fundiplication, uh, weight loss, bariatric surgery, ulcer surgery, things like that. We all know that many of our diabetic patients can go on to develop gastroparesis like we just talked about but anyone can so don't forget about that that it's you know doesn't just uh, respect the di- uh, doesn't just disrespect the diabetics rather um, keep the differential broad until you really lock in the different the diagnosis of, of gastroparesis um, something i found this helpful is kind of asking the patient almost like a migraine sufferer right like hey have you ever had this before you seem to come in for it quite a bit here and often they'll say yeah, this feels like something I've had before. This is caused by a nerve injury, including damage to the vagus nerve or you know, the, the innervation to the entire GI tract. Here's the pathophys. In the normal state, the vagus nerve stimulates a contraction or a tightening of the stomach muscles to help move the food along to the tract. In the case of the gastroparesis in diabetics, the vagus nerve is damaged by diabetics diabetes, rather, just like any other nerves are damaged, like in neuropathy or whatever else in diabetes. Whatever the course here, whatever the cause, it prevents the muscles of the stomach and the intestines from working properly, so the food doesn't move forward from the stomach into the intestines.
0: Right. So as we already sort of mentioned here, the top causes of gastroparesis are idiopathic, we don't know, diabetes, post-surgical, and iatrogenic, that's medication related. And those are things like narcotics, antidepressants, lithium, progesterone, clonidine, dopamine agonists, all of that can cause gastroparesis. And I think what's important is that you ask these patients, whether they have a history or not, um, Well, specifically, let's start with if they have a history, does this feel like your usual? Is it different? You know, you're going to ask those other abdominal assessment questions like, is there blood in their stool? Any diarrheal symptoms? Lower abdominal pain, which would not be something that would be typical of gastroparesis. You know, there's typically epigastric pain. Hmm. Do they have back pain? Urinary symptoms and fevers, also very important to ask and I, you know, I think what not to do is asking these patients for a food log because it really doesn't matter what they eat. Um, it could be anything and it could be a small amount. I care more sort of if they just got back from Mexico or they have a sick family member or they ate, um, you know, maybe three cheesesteaks in one sitting kind of thing, fine. Or they're eating dirt. I mean, you wouldn't believe the things that people have told me that they're eating, um, anything from baking soda to chewing on plastic and fad diets, which is essentially... You know, chewing on plastic. So ask us, ask, ask, and you shall receive. And of course, we've talked about this before is that if this is not a patient with a known gastroparesis or attack, you know, ask them about the hyperemesis related to marijuana ingestion or, um, you know, this could mimic a lot of the symptoms seen in traditional gastroparesis.
1: For sure. No, the symptoms are very similar in gastroparesis to our cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, bloating, nausea, early fullness while eating meals, that kind of heart-burning, epigastric, radiating up into the chest kind of pain. Perhaps the most common symptom is that early society or sensation of being full shortly after starting a meal. Uh, the vomiting, of course, is also common. A person with gastroparesis may vomit undigested food Many hours after the last meal, gross, there's a lot. That's very interesting to ask about here is, well, what does yeah. the vomit look like? Is there blood? Does it look like old food? Uh, that can really help seal the deal.
0: Gross. Is it a shrimp from like last Tuesday? <laughs> anyway, here's the treatment plan. Identify the issue if known, right? But also consider a wide differential like you mentioned, Mike. Do a good P, like we already talked about and then do your workup. And that could potentially include imaging such as a CT or ultrasound. However... Blood tests that you want to focus on would be a CBC, a CMP, lipase, urinalysis, and an EKG. Consider a two view of the chest. And uh, for older patients with like the bizarre chest pain, upper abdominal pain, you know, I add on troponins for these patients. If they're not really clear cut abdominal, is this something cardiac related? It depends on a lot of factors, obviously known diagnosis, age, history. No one said this patient was easy. And then, of course, we're going to ask them about medications, which we'll discuss in a minute. Um, but you need to get them fluids. You need to get them relief. And then, like we said, consider admission after a few hours and a few reassessments if they're not walking um, and you know their vitals still don't look great. They have to be able to tolerate liquids. And if they're doing those things, they're walking right, eating and drinking, sure, you can shoot for home. But... Patients on new medications that can cause delayed gastric emptying can be changed to other medications with the help of, of course, our expert teams. And that can stop the sort of pseudo gastroparesis uh, by eliminating those factors. One cool thing that you might be interested in hearing or listening to excuse me, listening for, is a succession splash. And if you want to impress the GI team, you're going to tell them you did this. So this is the noise you'll hear in the abdomen should the patient have retained gastric material for three or more hours after eating. It's this like sloshing sound that indicates gas or fluid in an obstructed patient. And basically on your exam, the patient will have upper abdominal tenderness, but they should not have a rigid abdomen and they should not. Um, like push your hands away per se, they should be able to tolerate your exam up there. And if um, you should listen for this splashing sound, you place the stethoscope over the epigastric region and rock the patient back and forth on their hips or tap their abdomen lightly. And a positive test occurs when the splashing noise is heard and the test is not valid if the patient has eaten or had any fluids within the last three hours.
1: All right, I'm trying that the next time I get a patient with gastroparesis coming in here. Well, how about medication-wise? What do we give these patients in the meantime, whether they're prepping to go to the inpatient floor or whatever here to get them comfortable? The American Academy of Gastroenterology covers a whole list of medications you can give. Um, you know, I like going with the recommendations so that if you know GI is going to be covering for this patient while they're admitted, then we, we're already kind of on the same page here out of the textbook here at the present time there are a few medications available uh, slash approved to treat gastroparesis and um, the hard part is some of these medications have certain side effects you want to avoid or maybe they're not as effective as you would want which is the whole point of pushing towards admission maybe aggressively early on so some of the medications they list include one of my favorites here metoclopramide which is reglin domperidone kind of a lesser available drug erythromycin we'll talk about that more in a second diphenhydramine, good old Benadryl, and Martha's favorite, prochlorperazine that's compazine, and maybe even a splash of ondansetron, some Zofran.
0: A splash Let's, for a splash, right?
1: Yeah, there you go. I like that here. We'll just squirt it in there and hear it just kind of like, <laughs> bloop, like land in the stomach. <laughs> Let's break down some of why these medications work for a minute. Metoclopramide acts on dopamine receptors in the stomach and the intestine, and the brain, and this medication can stimulate contraction of the stomach, and that what we want anyways. in These patients are going to lead to improvement in that gastric emptying. This medication also has the effect of acting on our kind of central receptors in the brain for vomiting reflex, and so we can get the nausea half of this problem down as well. Now, keep in mind, fast pushing this drug is not the way to go. It is associated with things like tardive dyskinesia, uh, anxiety. And so you want to kind of assess how heavy they've gone on Reglan up to that date.
0: Yeah. And I just wanted to say a quick word on, um, Domperidone, which it's another medication talked about uh, frequently for the treatment of, um, a lot of different issues. But what I want to say about it is that you can't really get it here. It's banned. In the United States and it's been banned for years because of fatal cardiac arrhythmias that were seen in cancer patients who had had it for nausea and vomiting Um, so it's still used in Mexico and Canada and some European countries quite freely and but I guess they don't care about cardiac arrhythmias there whatever Um, no that's not true but what you can do which I this is why I'm bringing it up and I even mentioned this medication in the first place I understand that we're not necessarily going to use it here but let's say you see a patient on vacation from somewhere else in the ER, and they're using this drug, or they tell you it's worked for them in the past. Uh, you may also see a patient um, that's in a study or in you know really bad shape. So let me explain that. If you want, you can actually ask the FDA to give it to you. In fact, if you like, you're in a GI clinic, if you're one of our people that maybe does some. Uh, moonlighting in another specialty, then, hey, you know, um, you could ask the FDA for permission. And we'll put in our liner notes how you do that. But the FDA recognizes that there are some patients with severe gastrointestinal motility disorders that are difficult to manage. And Domperidone's potential benefits may justify its potential risk, so they say. So patients 12 years or older that meet certain criteria that you want to apply for this drug you can they even provide an email address and a phone number so cool tidbits that's why i loved presenting this topic today mike
1: yeah that's some new looks on gastroparesis for me so i appreciate you bringing up that that hotline for domperidone for our show notes here okay um i want to add of course on dance's own Compazine, benadryl these are nice kind of adjuncts when your reglan fails so keep those in mind um I really do love the whole alcohol pad thing. as one more thing you can do as kind of like an aromatherapy to help kind of like ease the nausea and vomiting while we're waiting for our metoclopramide to kick in. So keep those things in mind. You don't have to let them retch for a half an hour until the medication finally jumps in.
0: Right. And then one last one about erythromycin. It's a commonly used antibiotic that binds to receptors in the stomach and the small intestine. Those those called the motilin receptors, and stimulation of the motilin receptors results in contraction and improved emptying of the stomach. So the beneficial effect of erythromycin can be short-lived as individuals who use it frequently might have a high likelihood of developing a tolerance to it, but you should consider trying to give it orally, but most likely it will be first IV, and I bet you will really impress your GI doc. I don't know why I care so much about impressing them today, but... Listen, if you really, if you feel like you need that in your life, um, you've got the nausea and vomiting under control with some Reglan and maybe some added Zofran. Then you give the patient two liters of lactated ringers and a touch of morphine to control their pain. And then you start them on some erythromycin, um, you know, before they got admitted to GI, right? That's really hot. You say, like, I did all this stuff. And then as they're taking the call and ending it, um, you could basically say, hey, would you like to request some Don't on from the FDA? I have their email. And uh, for a real kicker, you can get the GI team um, to do any recent ANA testing. Look at that. And look for autoimmune disorders. So, bam. I just totally got that patient, like,
1: worked up, baby. That is full spectrum, tied up in a bow, care for gastroparesis. Nice job.
0: Yeah, so I realize that a lot of these patients may aggravate you, but like I remind everybody, any patient that you feel is either something you don't want to see or potentially aggravates you, I say pick it up more so that you become the expert in your department. And then lastly, just to say for diabetic patients, you know, be sure to check their blood sugars and get them on a sliding insulin scale. I mean, this is super important. Um, you don't want to be balancing these really sick patients for long in the ER while carrying new patients. So don't, just make a decision within the first couple of hours. Some of these patients go to IMC and even ICU, depending on what their numbers look like, and they can fail quickly. So don't feel bad about not being able to fix them. Most likely the hospitalist isn't going to fix them today either.
1: (laughs) It is a whole circle of learned helplessness with these patients sometimes, unfortunately. Well, let's change from GI it's cardiology, and I want to introduce anybody uh, out there listening that doesn't know about this yet to a rare EKG finding that is starting to get some traction in the literature here. It's very important to recognize because it may be an impending sign of doom here. Uh, you guys probably out there, maybe some of you are old enough to remember that movie, The Ring, back in 2002, and yes, for all you super nerds, I know that it was a Japanese movie before then and a Japanese book before then. Just roll with me here, okay? So The Ring, 2002, you watch this creepy videotape, you get this phone call where someone goes, seven days, and then you die seven days later after watching this videotape. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? Could that ever happen in real life? And this EKG sign is kind of like that. So let me throw a case presentation at you here. This is a 44-year-old obese male who comes in with a chief complaint, <laughs> kind of very similar to our gastroparesis patients. Diffuse abdominal pain, worse of the epigastrium, intermittently vomiting today. Um, he's got some you know, medical history here of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, Oh, a little bit of coronary artery disease. And his surgical history is pretty broad, too. He's got his gallbladder out. He's got his appendix out. He's even have a laparoscopic repair of a ruptured diverticulum. So, Martha, how would you work up this patient?
0: Sounds like gastroparesis. Get him admitted.
1: Don <laughs> Peridone, go. Next go. question. FDA, contact <laughs> yeah. immediately. Well, yeah, both of us can see kind of the the minefield that this patient could be, because it could be so many things here. Um so let's kind of further go down the case presentation. You know, you do kind of your initial stuff. You're getting, uh, you know, your belly labs. You're going to do an EKG and because This person is risky from a cardiovascular perspective here. And imagine if, you know, your RN is pushing the pain and nausea, Medicaid, Jordan, meds, you, you ordered, and they go, oh, hey, uh, can you come into the patient room? There's something funny going on with the monitor because you put this patient on a cardiac monitor too, right? And what you see is this weird, like, st elevation but it's not like your standard st elevations you actually see a rising of the baseline before you even get to the qrs complex and so of course you see a funny you know rhythm on the monitor you burn an ekg and what you notice is in multiple leads you have this weird broad st elevation starting before the ekg uh, qrs complex here now There are ST elevations. So you're like, oh my gosh. And guess what? The 12 lead says, beep, beep, acute MI. So that sucks, right? But here's the hard part. Lots of things can cause ST elevations. Just like, you know, you get a CT scan, right? And the radiologist says like, hey, there's the possibility of this going on. Maybe you should clinically correlate and maybe order this other imaging study. That kind of boxes you in, right? And so when you have the machine interpreting a STEMI, you've got to at least talk about it very strongly in your chart why you're not treating it like a STEMI. Thrombolytics, PCI, these are not 100% harmless treatments. So what do you do? Well, this spiked helmet sign terminology first appeared in the literature in 2011, The index patient was a 58-year-old female and was in the hospital, hospitalized with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And on day two of the hospitalization, she developed pretty bad abdominal pain. Her blood pressure went up. Her respiration rate went up. They did an EKG, and it showed this weird new ST elevation like we're describing, where the baseline shifting rise happened before the QRS complex. They did a quick echo, they did cardiac biomarkers, they were all normal, and the weird ST elevation went away two hours later. But 12 hours after that, the patient changed course again. And and what the literature describes is the patient had evidence of, quote, an acute abdomen, whatever that meant there. They rushed the patient off to the OR, they did an emergency uh, laparotomy, and they saw the patient had a perfed bowel, bowel necrosis throughout, and the patient is dead. 24 hours after this weird, transiently unusual EKG. Well, I mean, that was kind of freaky for the authors of the study, so they went back, and they looked at a bunch of other EKGs that had been burned for patients throughout, you know, the past couple of months, and they found eight other patients with a similar spiked helmet pattern. Six out of the eight patients died, an average of 5.5 days after that funny EKG. The two that lived were debilitated. They were discharged to rehab or sniff. Seven out of those eight patients had EKGs either before or after, and sometimes both, showing none of that weird um, broad ST elevation here, that spiked helmet sign. They started calling it in this case study here. None of them had that weird ST elevation before or after. All of them had acute MI ruled out by biomarkers. And for me, this was like, oh my gosh, this is like the ring in that movie. Like You see this sign, and then you die 5.5 days later.
0: Right, so I just have to remind the audience that like I'm looking at something that they can't see, and did you legit alter the cover of the ring movie to look like the spiked helmet sign? Because what I'm looking at is the cover of the movie The Ring, but now the little ring has been changed into a spiked helmet sign. So that's very clever, Mike.
1: I did do some uh, MS paint work, yeah, in my spare time. <laughs> we'll yeah, make sure pre- we post that. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Cool. Well, the spiked helmet sign uh, is referred to uh, because this was a, a helmet that was introduced into the Prussian army back in the 1800s for different reasons here. Um, and, Martha, we're going to have some different shots of different kinds of these spiked helmet signs. right in our show notes.
0: Yes, Mike. And to use a phrase from wine culture, we're going to have a lot of different varietals of spiked helmet signs in our show notes because of how important this is to drill into your visual memory. But what's the key here, Mike?
1: Yeah, the key is you're, again, looking for some sort of broad upsloping before the QRS complex. It's not like the delta wave you might be familiar with with uh, Wolf Parkinson White syndrome. It's much broader and much wider. It's not always a perfect, like symmetrical helmet shape, but there is some sort of broad upsloping. Now, you know, the question, the next question obviously is, well, why? Why is this happening to result in this weird EKG change? Well, it's kind of unclear. There's been a lot of different critical non-cardiac stuff that's been associated with this spiked helmet sign. You might have a pneumothorax, ARDS, aortic dissection, some sort of bowel obstruction, bowel perforation, even intracranial pathologies, okay, some sort of intracranial hemorrhage, They've also seen it in someone doing a procedure for a stellate ganglion ablation for someone who had like, um, you know, refractory SVT. So um, as you could tell, some of these things you wouldn't want to give like thrombolytics for someone who's having a brain bleed or a dissection you know? So what they try to figure out is what is one uniting pathology here? And it could be some sort of weird central sympathetic activation. It might be that this is weird, like a weird prolonged repolarization. These could be like giant T U waves that are merged together. Okay. So as far as diagnostics, you get somebody, they're sick, You see the Spike helmet sign, you freak out for a second, then you go, "Uh uh-uh, I listened to the two of you, I know what to do here. What you're going to do, you're going to do a 12-lead EKG, of course, you're going to get your cardiac biomarkers because, look, even though it looks funny, it might still be a STEMI. We're going to consult, we're going to do an echo if we can, and the most important thing is a good reassessment because, like you've seen or heard, rather, The cause can be in any different number of body systems. You're not going to know just from looking at the EKG. There have been certain case studies of people having a spiked helmet sign. The clinician recognized it and found out what was wrong, treated it, and the patient didn't die or didn't get debilitated. They recovered well and were discharged.
0: All right. So let's go back to our case presentation. This 44-year-old obese male with abdominal pain, vomiting, multiple comorbidities, and a pretty strong history of previous abdominal surgeries. Like you said, if you see the spiked helmet sign, it's time to kind of start over and see what's changed in the patient's course, if anything, and where you can intervene.
1: Yeah. I mean, this could go multiple ways, right? So like if you choose your an adventure, you pick, you know, door number A, right? The nurse says, hey, the patient said he had a real severe headache, and now the patient is obtunded. You're going to want to burn a head CT, and maybe you see a, 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 a cranial hemorrhage. Or you choose door number B, and the nurse instead says, oh yeah, the patient said he was very short of breath all of a sudden. And you do a little exam, and you go, oh wow, there's more work of breathing. I'm hearing decreased lung sounds to the left. Maybe you see a pneumothorax that spontaneously occurred. Or maybe door number C or letter C, right? The patient has more of a rigid abdomen than when they first came into the ED. You do a CT scan. We see some small bowel obstruction. You do an NG tube, and that sucks out a bunch of gastric contents from the stomach here. So this could really go any number of ways. The the key here is, number one, drill into your visual memory this spiked helmet sign. If you see something funny in the EKG, recognize it's not necessarily a STEMI. Do the workup for that. But above all, Check your patient out and ask some questions of whoever saw the patient, especially if they're not, you know, alert and oriented, see what you can figure out from the history and maybe you'll make that life-saving call here.
0: Awesome, Mike. I love that. That was a great segment. Um, you know, I got to say though, let's move on to something that has maybe nothing to do with medicine or anything having to do with real work. We're going to talk about fun stuff. This is our, our last conversation piece for the day before we get into our interview And I kind of want to just talk about side gigs, second jobs for NPs and PAs, as well as advancing yourself within your profession or branching out into a subspecialty. Sure. I want to start off by talking a little bit about what kind of side gigs we can get. And first off, Mike, tell me about your side gigs and why you chose them.
1: Yeah. uh, You know, I do some occupational medicine on the side. I mean, I feel like that really... um, Builds off of my military medicine experience with a lot of musculoskeletal care there as well as ER experience where occupational medicine, you're kind of ruling out the bad things initially and then referring to PT and kind of managing someone's care over time as far as usually a musculoskeletal injury, right? Um, And of course, I love teaching, right? That's why I'm with the Center for Medical Education. I do other educational gigs as well. So, um, you know, people talk about like, wow, that sounds like just too busy you know, but, uh, I like it. I like the variety. I like solving different problems, uh, on different days and not just the shift and the work and and going to and from the same ED over and over again, day in and day out, month in and month out.
0: Yeah. That can get very exhausting and, uh, not fun. So certainly many people can do a side gig that has nothing to do with medicine or nursing, um, of any kind. For example, I have an ER NP friend that sells, makeup, okay? She loves it. My ERPA friend has a side business selling used cars and boats. And he's a good one to know, by the way. I also have a friend whose side gig is doing what their spouse does and they're involved in a family business. But I'm going to weigh in on how I chose my side gigs and just kind of give suggestions for people who want to, quote, stay medical. Um, it can be quite You know, anything really in the medical field, it's so hard to choose. When I first started out in this business, I was a scribe. So I was a good writer and I loved being super organized um, because I was also a librarian at the time for a collections development and reserves department at my university, at American University, where I did my first degree. And, and being a scribe was easy for me. I really enjoyed that. In fact, I'd still do it for free if money was no object because I love seeing patients and I love seeing someone go through a differential diagnosis and plan. So what other ways could I emulate that love, right? So it took a great deal of time finishing um, my schoolwork and teaching to me was sort of that next step and applying some of these things. Just like you said, it's fun. I love to stay current and fresh it's just great for me to meet people and learn from them as well so yeah I like I like to get involved in didactic lectures and our courses for CCme I run sim lab and to me that side gig is fulfilling and fun but um, what I really think is the difficult part is how does one get involved in teaching and didactic lecture like you know for a company like ours or even a university or online teaching whatever and is it any good or worth your time? I mean, my best advice, if you want to get into teaching in any way, find the college or university that is affiliated with your hospital first and see if they need volunteers for anything. You know, nothing comes easy at first. So offer to do a guest lecture, either for the students uh, or for your department, and keep a current CV that that makes a list of all your talks and that way you know you kind of keep your topics evergreen as well and you can go to the person in your department that might be in charge of helping with acls pals or bls as an instructor and you can get involved with that get your foot in the door and then you've taught something right you could also apply gosh this is taking it really to the next level but you could apply to a phd program and i the only reason i'm saying is you could take a long time to do that and get involved in research, in which case then you would eventually become uh, a higher educator. Um, but basically, you know, committing to something and, and doing something that you love. Another one that I would suggest is the ultrasound IV guided se- sessions for clinicians. And um, that helps you sort of get involved in something you're already doing, become an expert at it and teach people in your department.
1: I listen to you know some business podcasts and, and, and read other topics here. And so something that one of the people I listen to kind of suggests is that, hey, look, maybe you're not going to be the expert in X, field X. And maybe you're not going to be the expert in field Y either. But do you have enough knowledge in X and Y that you can live in this weird intersection of those fields and tie those fields together and be the expert in? In the combination of x and y like i used to one of my old side gigs it was free but i loved it i worked at the traumatic brain injury clinic on base after i came back from afghanistan and it turned out that half of the patients that i saw there uh, who were getting kind of like post concussion syndrome care were my soldiers from my battalion and so i got to tie together my experience that was on the battlefield or close to the battlefield with kind of, you know, concussion experience here and, and that seeing patients so close to the point of injury and afterward may be kind of uniquely valued at that clinic versus people that were straight physical therapists or straight neurologists, things like that. So that was kind of a cool thing. That combination of stuff like you're kind of suggesting here as far as like, you know, education and medicine or, you know, procedures and medicine here as far as your original field but a new procedure here, sometimes that combination can yield really interesting results from a professional standpoint.
0: Certainly, and also kind of in the same vein is publishing, right? So writing about things and and looking up statistical information and being a part of studies. Now, I've done a lot of publishing, but how does one get involved in publishing? First of all, let me remind a lot of you that most of my writing when we first started for Emergency Medicine News was free. Nobody paid me for anything. I spent hours on end writing these columns and and putting together videos and procedures. I mean, it was a lot of work. I didn't make a dime. And it's also, you can't be a sucky writer, right? So I, I hate to break it to you. If you suck at writing, then please don't go into that i mean sure maybe you can get on a study and do it those those types of, of publishing but you can't go into it thinking you're going to be the next Ernest hemingway or greg henry right so um i actually was talking to diane bernbauer the other day which by the way spoiler alert agreed to do next month's show all right and i'm that's great. I know, super excited she's going to be on the show talking about her wolves and sheep clothing cases right. that she often does at our CCME courses. And uh, I wonder if she has any gastroparesis cases that are um, that went south. I'm going to have to ask her, or even if she's had some of the spiked helmet cases. Anyway, <laughs> right. um, she's an incredible writer and editor. And what she told me, which I thought was very interesting, is that she's already a great writer and editor, but she's taking a creative writing course right now. And she shared with me how it helps her brain Um, kind of power on in a different way to be an even better writer which is really cool stuff and you know maybe she'll write a short story like Michael Crichton you know we don't know what she might give us Um, but yeah the point is here find something that you're passionate about and you can submit things to journals like EP Monthly or EM News or even the New York Times. Who cares? Start small. Submit something to a website or a podcast that you like, like ours, and we can help you out. And if you want to get fancy, you can get on the marketing or editorial team for a book or a text or at your university, and bam, a teaching position will fall right into your lap. And you never know. When, when one door closes, a window may open.
1: Yeah, you know, the phrase is like, it's who you know, right? But I find it's more appropriate to say, it's who knows you. So you've got to be out there in the space and the conversation meeting people and, you know, and people, you know, knowing that you are a, a good clinician, a good person who's easy to talk to and work with, and you'd be surprised how those things can take you very far. I mean, it used to be that, you know, these deals were settled on the golf course or in the bar. But now we have Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, I mean, TikTok probably would not do it on TikTok. But, you know, like there's ways to get out there. And you can do it from the comfort of your own home.
0: Right. So finally, if you feel like you're looking for something other than teaching or publishing or writing, um, consider things like medical sales, like the guys and gals who work for Butterfly IQ or the IO or the GlideScope. I mean, make friends with them at a conference. Go get drinks, something. That also makes me think about medical consulting or specializing in a subfield like sane nursing or, or work for the county or public health. I also like things like tutoring for boards or mentoring, life coaching, things like that.
1: Yeah, those are supremely important. I feel like nowadays more the life coaching thing is taking on a a, you know a new life, especially with the struggles of the past year. The bottom line is find something you're passionate about. Like, don't just look for the most high earning side gig because eventually, you know, you'll make some money. It'll get boring, and and you'll kind of be like, "What else can I do?" And, And people will feel that lack of passion, frankly. Um, ER is great work, and urgent care is great work, and I love it and I don't want to do anything else clinically, but at the same time, it's nice to flex other uh, intellectual muscles like Diane Birnbaumer is doing. Yeah. Um, keep a few things in mind when you are deciding, you know, something falls into your lap and you're trying to decide like, do I say yes to this? I think it's important to figure out your goals first. Uh, you know, figure out where you want to go. And let that drive your decisions instead of just kind of saying yes to whatever. Um, Everyone's got goals. Frankly, my goals are to make sure that all four of my kids get into some sort of secondary education if you want to. I want to make sure my mortgage is paid every month uh, on time. I want to have fun. I want to work with fun, good people. I want to do a job that uh, speaks to my passions of clinical medicine and also education, but also podcasting. I enjoy this a lot, too. Uh, And and I like meeting people that are doing cool things. And so if I find a job where people are doing those things, I I think it's a good thing that meets my goals and helps me to meet my own goals for myself and my family.
0: Right. But, Mike, I think another important thing that we might want to end on for this segment is that, is it worth it?
1: Yeah, I... Because all these things take time. If they're worth doing, they're going to take time, whether it's an investment into whatever education you need or a certification or something to to access this new gig. And that's going to be kind of a personal decision, um, and not just for you but for your family, whoever's involved in your family as well, um, to figure out whether, hey, if I do something outside of my 13 or 14 shifts a month in the ER or urgent care. Is that cool? Does that meet our needs as a family? Or is that going to mess things up? And, you know, some sort of a, you know, pros and cons board could be worthwhile as far as like, you know, how it changes your finances, how it changes your time available, how another course of action could be just pick up more shifts at the gig you're already at. Having, you know, big, dream discussions. My kids kind of joke with me because my wife and I went on a dream date the other night, and it wasn't like a dream date like we went to Hawaii or anything, but it was talking about You our went dreams. to
0: Applebee's, right? Yeah. Applebee's? <laughs> uh,
1: Chili's. chilies, thank you. Um, but yeah, just to talk about our dreams as far as like what do we want out of our family life and out of our, our married life here. So, so thinking from a, a goals and dreams perspective here, I think is super important. Helps you and, and, and your significant other and your kids make these decisions that are ultimately together decisions and not just you decisions they should be anyways
0: yeah well so if you're going to moonlight somewhere and that's your side gig make sure it doesn't interfere with your current or part-time jobs and be clear about the expectations uh, for your schedule from the start my last per diem gig uh, became my full-time gig so that's always nice too so i posted some links in our liner notes about all of these concepts and a few really food for thought pieces that have nothing to do with medicine so you could take a look at some of those as well
1: yeah it's nice just to kind of like mentally step out of of the grind of the ER and think about what else is there out there and is there a role for me that's of course at our website twoview.fireside.fm that's the number 2view.fireside.fm
0: okay it's time for our last segment where we're going to be doing an interview It's our three-view interview, and today we are getting a bit somber and serious. We wanted to discuss some of the recent political changes in the world of PAs. I also have a few questions for Mike and our special guest host, Randy Danielson. Before we do that, I think this introduction to these issues... From me is a a little bit needed, and I'm going to ask you to bear with me for just a few minutes while I explain what is going on in the world of advanced practice providers and physicians in healthcare and why it's so troubling. Some physicians are taking the bullying and hatred of each other in the ER workplace to new levels. I want to mention one group that has been particularly awful, and that was on the EM doc page on Facebook. This group is a collection of EM physicians who are not only bashing APPs, but their own kind as well. When I saw them spewing out hate messages and posts to some of the top EM doctors in the country, quite possibly the world, such as Rick Bucata, Diane Birnbauer, Jillian Schmidt, Ken Milne, and many others, that's when I really knew those statements posted were not credible at all. The group is filled with insecure and ill-tempered trolls who literally have nothing better to do than post garbage on that site and spew hate. They complain that APPs ask stupid questions on their Facebook pages, and then I see and hear the posts on the EM Docs page where physicians literally ask the same questions. This behavior carries over on Twitter, other social media outlets, and eventually into the workplace. I have hundreds of doctors' friends in the EM community who have all given me some updates about these uh, types of groups and feedback. Most recently, I was sent a thread that talked about the PA name change, and in that area, people suggested new names for PAs, and let me just read verbatim what some people said in that EM Docs page for new names for PAs. Private Equity Bottom Line, Alternative Path Medical Associate, Healthcare Rista, Top of Licenser, Partially Trained Practitioner. And by the way, you spelled practitioner wrong on that site. Uh, whoever posted that, specialty hopper, corner cutter, shortcutter, useful idiot, patient assassin, and the last one, licensed to kill. This is behavior from educated physicians. There has to be more insight into what is hateful versus real concern for real issues in the physician world as APPs continue to build their careers. And by this I mean, it's one thing to say I support PA and NPs in a physician-led environment. That's great. I am totally 100% on board with that. But practicing medicine is a team sport. Nurses and physicians and extenders of any kind all practice medicine together. I feel like what we have here is similar to interpersonal or domestic violence. We are battling each other instead of making amazing leaps and bounds in healthcare, moving forward in the field of emergency medicine. The physicians who state ignorant things like stop, scope, creep, and I won't work with a mid-level and only MDs and DOs should practice medicine seem to be more like bullies that make our healthcare system worse. Think of all the amazing things we could do together as a team. If we're all on the same page, not hating on each other, not disrespecting each other, but teaching, growing community, communicating, building, and moving a well-oiled machine or sailing on a great solid ship. The last time, Mike, this is the last thing I'm going to say here is that we talked about (laughs) the ER being like a pirate ship. There has to be a leader helping the team. Sure. Totally get that. And that's the captain. Great. But there are also first mates and a crew. And there's also sometimes an annoying parrot who won't stop talking, a bunch of people getting drunk, and we're helping them put their clothes back on and not break things. Um, But in the end, if you're the captain, a matey, or the crew, you're all keeping the boat afloat and everyone is a sailor. What I mean by this is that saying things like stop educating APPs because that gives them scope creep, it's just foolish. You want all the people in the room at the top of their game. You want all the minds to want to be smart and educated, fully capable of a disaster. You need a partner and a second look at things sometimes. You all want the ship to stay afloat and not sink. Therefore, not just the captain needs to know how to tie knots and shoot guns. The crew needs to teach the captain how to hoist the sails and drop the anchor should he be alone on the ship. And the captain has many jobs, and the crew has to be up to speed on the latest and greatest so that no one dies, literally. So with that being said, I just have to add that any APP who wants to increase their knowledge and gather or gain education is not a bad person. They're not a creep. Education is a good thing, and it helps us all be our best. So now it's time to get into what two extremely smart and well-educated physician assistants, associates, we'll talk about that. Um, Mike and Randy, Mike, I've done enough talking. Let's introduce Randy.
1: You know, Martha, I think it's very sweet of you to dive into this. I mean, you as an NP could have easily just like stepped back and been like, oh, this is like a physician PA thing. I'm just going to like see myself out of this, but, uh, it means a lot that, that you are diving into the fray, uh, with this, this is what this podcast is all about, right? This is how our podcast is different from all the other EM podcasts out there, because we're talking about things from a PA and NP perspective. Let's meet Randy, everybody. Randy has been part of our Center for Medical Education Courses as faculty for many years and is an extremely bright and caring and, and fun and masterful PA. He's PhD trained. He can always get any room of people, even the big 700 person rooms in Vegas we, we talk at excited about learning, and he clearly knows the material well. It's always great to literally share the stage with him at our courses. Randy is a professor and the director of the Doctor of Medical Science program at the Arizona State School of Health Sciences, and he is the director of the Center for the Future of Health Professions at A.T. Still University. He is constantly looking at data, statistics, and even publishing himself and helping lead the way of a better healthcare system. So let's get this started by first talking about what happened, Randy, specifically in the PA world just about a week ago, I feel like, um, at the time of this recording. Um, So basically, the American Academy of Physician Assistants, our House of Delegates, which is basically PAs from all different states and specialty groups that are elected by PAs to represent the profession as a whole. They voted to change the name of our profession, Physician Assistant, to Physician Associate. Now, for some brief background, the first PA class started out as Physicians, apostrophe S, Assistants. That was the first class in Duke back in the day, and we've kind of gone through different titles to Physician Associate, then physician assistant without the apostrophe S, but some schools still have their programs as physician associate programs. So it's, it's kind of a mess, frankly. What do you think about this, Randy? What, what is your perspective on
2: this? Well, first of all, thank you, uh, Martha and Mike, for having me. Um, it, it's been a crazy week since the House of Delegates uh, made this decision. But I have to say from the very beginning, that the PA profession this is not nothing new. The PA profession has been debating the idea of a name change, a title change for decades. I mean, forty-seven years ago when I when I graduated, um I like to say I was a child prodigy, but anyway, I graduated from a medx program, and in fact, after my name, it had MX for a few years. Now, that ask me if that confuses a few people. But a few years after that, the profession consolidated the terms medx, child health associate, physician assistant, physician associate, and uh, uh, and that and then we became one profession. Now, 50 years ago, when the profession started. PAs filled a very unique role as assistants or extenders to primary care positions. I was very proud you know, to be part of that period of time because uh, we truly were assistants at that time. Um, since that time, 50 years later, the core knowledge required in the scope of practice uh, of PAs increased, uh, thus outliving the assistant role, if you will. And in 2018, the AAPA House of Delegates actually spoke very clearly for the profession for a change in the title. And so the AAPA board actually hired WPP, which is a national and reputable marketing firm, to study the name change, Mike. And that's sort of is why we're talking about it today.
1: I forgot about MedEx. I knew about those programs back in the day. I didn't even know about Child Health Associates. So, yeah, um, that's amazing. Over 50 years, we've had so many different titles affiliated with our profession here. So, um, you know, you mentioned that the House of Delegates spoke about the
2: need for a change. Why? What was the purpose of this need? Well, a great question. Uh, the thought behind the title change is really to reflect more accurately, if you will, what PAs do in clinical practice. Uh, when we started 50 years ago, PAs were only found in primary care. Um, it, it, it was heresy to think about moving into a specialty practice. Um, and now, as you know, you know almost 70% of all PAs are in a specialty practice and about 30% in primary care. Um, so the, the scope of practice has significantly changed the core knowledge has changed. And uh, so the, the House of Delegates says, we, we really need you know to, to change the title to more accurately uh, describe what we do. Having done that, this also will help us with legislative efforts to improve practice laws and secure parity with advanced practice providers. Um, we've had many legislatures uh, in a number of states say, wait a minute, you know, you're trying to increase your scape- scope of practice, but you're still using this term assistant. And so it really you have to decide, you know, the title change design. Do we want our title to be descriptive, you know, or inventive? We can talk more about that in a minute, mm-hmm. but, the, but the WPP really looked at um, the questions that were looking at the branding of PAs, you know, what drives value in healthcare? Well, we know it's patient experience, quality of care, access to care, and how are PAs perceived? And they looked at, at all of different variables uh, of PA practice in the country. And that sort of got to the point where, um, you know, it was very clear that the term assistant no longer describes what PAs actually do as part of the healthcare team.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm gonna read directly from this ASEP and EMRA joint statement about the professional title change. In part they say, the term associate creates confusion and does not appropriately convey to our patients or the public the role physician assistants serve while working under emergency physician-led care. And I have to ask them, it's like, well, did, did assistance, did that word not create confusion? Did assistance appropriately convey to our patients what they were doing when sometimes it was the pa that was from soup to nuts taking care of these patients and not even talking to an ep one time is that what an assistant does in any other arena in the world where assistance exists so yeah i think this statement is frankly wrong-footed and it just kind of like overlooks the the obvious there but what we're trying to do with the name change it is to as they say avoid confusion it is to appropriately convey to patients and the public, our current role. There was a lot of heartburn about hiring WPP um, because of the pretty, I mean, large, whenever you throw the word million around, people get kind of anxious about millions or even a million dollars being spent. But yeah, uh, six figures plus were spent, I guess seven, on hiring WPP. Can you talk about more, like sum up what would be, WPP's scope was in, in our hiring of them, or I guess AAPA's hiring of them?
2: Sure. Great question. Um, you know, it, it, if we were just going to change our name within the profession from physician assistant to physician associate, we probably didn't need, you know, to spend over a million dollars for a marketing branding firm. However, you know, the, the AAPA board of directors says, wait a minute, let's do this correctly. Rather than just coming up with a name, let's, let's do some research. I mean, what a, what a novel idea to do some research. And uh, even though it was expensive, uh, the hiring of the marketing firm uh, over the space of a couple of years turned out to be very valuable. Uh, surveys were sent to PA students, to PAs, to MDs, DOs, public, administrators, regulators. And what they found was, um, of all of the PAs that were surveyed, 90% of them felt that their title was not representative of their role. And I might say here, I mean, you know, I've owned that term physician assistant for my entire career, you know, and and people like to hold on to things, you know, but look at this was clear that it needed to be changed. So the goal of WPP was really to find a meaningful title. Uh, They they reported back to the House of Delegates in 2020. Um, We can talk in a minute if you want about the a couple of suggestions, um, but then once that was reported, then that information in the report was given to all the constituent organizations, the special interest groups, the caucuses, uh, and to talk to their to their the PA's in those in those areas, and to come back to the House delegates this year, um, um, as they did, you know, with over you know, over six hours of debate uh, just on the name change issue, Um, and uh, as a result of that, and we'll talk more, is, you know, they they came back supporting the term physician associate over all others, and uh, so, you know, they took up the debate, and now it goes for ratification and work by the the board of of directors.
1: And those hours of debate, which were all virtual, which is like just one more hurdle we're trying to overcome in these pandemic times, I mean, that was the culmination of Months of debate and discussion in different forms between PAs about medical care practitioner, which was, um, you know, this term that WPP kind of invented in a way and kind of said, hey, this is a novel term that describes what PAs do. And, you know, we can kind of own it. Um, Debate between that physician associate and then a whole host of other. People kind of trying to invent their other names outside of what WPP um, wanted here. So, do you want to talk about more in depth about the the actual the formal debate that happened and kind of the the surveys leading up to that debate just a week ago?
2: Sure. So, first of all, um, every state chapter um, went to their constituents and did a survey and long before the House of Delegates convened, and uh, and said, okay, you know, the WPP said their number one recommendation was medical care practitioner. Their number two was, you know, physician associate. And uh, so uh, that information was brought to the House of Delegates during the reference committee, and it was shared. um, And it was very clear um, that the majority, and I don't have the exact uh, number of states that did this, but um, it's very clear that number one, that the PAs wanted to change, you know, and number two, they didn't want to Go so far as use the term medical care practitioner, um, and uh, and so after a great deal of debate, um, it really came down to this between those two names. So medical care practitioner, as as different as it sounds, you know, really takes the PAs um, far away from their physician colleagues. I think, whereas physician assistant. You know, keeps the name physician in the title, and and uh, uh, it says to our physician colleagues, we value, you know, that relationship that we have with you in in the mutual uh, practicing of medicine. Uh, so um, I think that's what that that's what was the game changer at the at the debate. Some people wanted to keep it physician assistant, but that was a very small minority, and it came down to really keeping physician in the title or not. And uh, and I think, uh, uh, oh, and the other thing I wanted to add is um, uh, the student students out there, the PA students, spoke very loudly, number one, that we need to change. This is their future profession, need to change the title, and they were all in favor of using the term physician associate.
0: Guys, I you know I just want to step in, Mike and Randy. You know you're telling me about what all these people have kind of put millions of dollars into looking at, and and these other certifying boards, yada yada yada. But are you happy with the name change? Do you think it's a better choice than Patient Assassin?
1: <laughs> I, I was personally pulling for Medical Ninja. That didn't really get a lot of <laughs> traction, but uh, that's where I was going with it. Um, I, I don't know personally. I think the best thing we could have done was to step away from the title of physician assistant. And beyond that, I think that it's kind of debatable. I was personally pulling for medical care practitioner, frankly. I, I know it's kind of more of a radical move than physician associate, but I think it was a title that we could own and and not, and not use it to frame our profession in relation to another profession. You know what I'm saying, and and we, it could be our own thing, and it describes exactly what we do. Uh, and so I thought that was all positive stuff. Randy, how about you? Personal thoughts here, not not at all endorsed by A.T. Still or, or anybody else here. What do you think?
2: Well, great question. Um, by the way, uh, in the in the 1980s, uh, the profession actually had a couple of other names that was that was looked at. One of them was soniatrist. So. Think about that one for a while. Anyway, um, I, I'm, I'm actually from the very beginning. Um, I've been I've been wanting to see the name changed to physician associate. As you mentioned, Mike, early on, Duke, uh, Oklahoma, Emory, uh, they got their degree was physician associate degrees. Um, so, uh, and it really comes down to, um, you know, when the PA profession started, 1965, as you know, um, it was created by physicians for physicians. And it worked really well for all these years. As I said earlier, the profession has changed. Um, but but we, we owe our allegiance to physicians and our, our teamwork and our friendship with them. And I think that the, the, the word physician associate does that. Now, um, I, I know that a lot of the organized medicine groups don't like that, but I, I think it, it does say what we do.
1: It's so tricky, right? I mean, people accuse PAs um, of—this is probably too strong of wording here—but, like, stabbing physicians in the back and wanting to go around them. But from everything I've seen in my brief time, especially relatively to you, Randy, of PAs, we're always going to the physician community and trying to work with them. And so it's like, what does it say— When the physician community, a lot of these big medical organizations here are pushing us away, you know, um, when we see stuff like that, when we see these moves by large organizations that kind of are are rebuking the PA profession, I kind of feel like the right thing is as a profession, as a PA professional body, all the PAs somehow professionally separating or disassociating, but continuing that strong tradition of clinical collaboration in the clinic, in the ED, in the hospital, in the OR, working side by side with patients. There can be a difference, in my opinion, between professional collaboration and, and professional association and clinical association. It's very subtle. You can't capture it in a couple of characters on Twitter, but, but that's what I think is important. Um, and, and this kind of difference and this nuance that's involved – I think it's led to some of these statements that Martha referred to from ASEP and EMRA, from AOA, um, where we're having these organizations come out against us. We're having individuals speak out against us. Some pretty prominent physicians put their names on the line and pushing back against PAs, but also maybe not as prominent, or at least openly, there are individual clinicians that are speaking out and saying, Hey, I never thought assistant was a good name for you anyways, and good on you. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the AOA response? We've kind of went over ASAP and Emerald's response. Do you want to mention what AOA said here?
2: Well, sure. Um, and first of all, um, I think what's important, you know, at least anecdotally, is what are people saying at the practice site? I mean, at the site where we see our patients, you know, what are, what are, what are, what are the physicians saying? And, uh, and, you know, I think many of them, Uh, Like you said, you know, are saying, why didn't you do this earlier? You know, we we appreciate your association with us, Uh, but anyway, in terms of the AOA response, um, probably the one issue that really stuck out for me was the issue of their concerns about patient safety. Um, Frankly, I think that's a bit of a scapegoat for protecting one's territory and, and and client base. And a little bit of elitism, um, and so that worries me. And and uh, and I think, as Martha said earlier, you know, um, what we really want to do is find better ways of taking care of our patients as a team. You know, um, many many years ago, my the, my physician I worked with for five years right out of school, he always told me three things. He said, Randy, don't ever forget it's about the patient. Number one. Number two, don't ever lose your integrity. And number three, a bit tongue in cheek, he said, and outlive your enemies. And, uh, <laughs> and so, Very good. yeah, I think I think that's what we need to do. We need to be professional, have high integrity, and quality of care, and outlive those folks who, frankly, don't understand the whole concept. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll I'll stop there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I kind of wanted to ask this question in that same vein. Do PAs and NPs really do us collectively, and I, I hate to say collectively, but we do a similar, not the same job, similar job, do we practice medicine? Is that what we do?
1: I'm going to take kind of a Socratic approach here and ask some questions in response to that, right? Um, the PA profession from the very first graduating class was educated by physicians, and that's expanded to include Physicians now, PAs, other healthcare workers. I've had, you know, pharmacists and dentists in in my uh, PA education impact me in the formal education process here. And and the question I have to ask is this then: Well, if physicians weren't teaching medicine to PAs, what were they teaching? Like, where do they learn this other? field that they supposedly were teaching to PAs other than medicine? What gives them the authority to teach that field versus the medicine that they have trained in? And, and by the way, who defines medicine? Is it the AOA? Is it ASEP? Is it the American Medical Association?
2: Or is it somebody else? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I mean, I think, I mean, it's a society thing. I mean, you know, who, de- who determines the body of knowledge? You know, um, I think the body of knowledge for PAs 50 years ago was different, you know, but as we've become, you know, uh, uh, many more of us out there practicing, I think the body of knowledge has increased. And I think a lot of studies show that. Um, and so who defines it? I think society does. I mean, if you, if you look up, um, and I did look this up, and the definition was the science or practice of the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of disease in um, technical use, often taken to to exclude surgery, but nowhere in there did it say MD, NP. I mean, you know, that's a body of knowledge, you know, that, that, uh, um, that, that I think we all share.
1: Right. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's the province of, of these physician organizations, frankly, to define it um, for the entire world. Um, I want to briefly talk about what we do as PAs right now, we are not to be calling ourselves physician associates. And um, there are a lot of legislative and regulatory hurdles to be cleared before we all formally re our scrubs and our lab coat. So don't be jumping to the embroidery store just yet, folks. This is directly from AAPA saying this to PA. So please not just us here, the two of you, but this is official guidance from the AAPA. And, and speaking of the AAPA, right? Um, so maybe you didn't want to change at all from physician assistant. Maybe you wanted to go a little more extreme and go with medical care practitioner or some other title. Well, what do you think then? Like, do, do we, as PAs, vote with our wallets, right? Do we say like, well, I don't like what AAPA did there. Do we choose to not financially support the AAPA to to become or retain
2: our membership there? Um, thoughts with that, Randy? Yeah, great, thank you. Um, you know, this is not the time to be apathetic. And unfortunately, um, you know apathy is is, is uh, no stranger to any of our professions. Um, so it's it's time to to put, put, take your apathetic hat and put it away. Um, you know, I, I think and the other thing that I think is important to realize is this title change thing is step one in about three hundred and fifty steps over the next three to five years. And and how that goes is gonna depend on not only the game plan that AAPA has, um, you know, but what happens in the states. And that's us, that's, that's the PAs in each of the states needs to step up to the plate. And you're right. Um, donate to to their PAC uh, or donate their time to the, the state association uh, particularly the legislative and legal affairs committees. Um, And, and because this is going to be a critical time um, you know, I I don't want to be rehashing the name again in three or four years, like we've done for so many years.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Withholding support from AAPA or the state orgs is the wrong move right now more PAs need to jump in because here's the thing if it's not APA, who like and not our state orgs, then who there's nobody else that is pushing the profession forward like the state orgs like AAPA are. So, if there was another organization out there that was that could do the same thing, then fine, it's worth having a debate. But right now, we need to band together as PAs like never before. And not just on name change, but everything else that we're trying to accomplish as a profession, again, to make sure that the public understands what PAs are and do.
0: Wow, you guys, this was really powerful. It was hard for me not to say more. I just really enjoyed sort of listening to what things go on, both um, personally for you all in your experience, your transitioning over time to various, um, name titles, changes and careers. Um, but really in the end, uh, I think, like I said before, we're, we're all in the field of practicing medicine. I do feel that way. Um, again, I may get some backlash for saying something like that, uh, but I I believe that nurses making decisions, um, bedside nurses, you know, hanging drips and titrating them, they're practicing medicine in some way, shape, or form. And as Mike said, you know, what does it really mean to use that phrase? And we should, you know, consider exploring that more on maybe some future podcasts and also talking about the history of the nurse practitioner and and sort of how how complex that can be as well. Um, uh, but in summary, thanks guys for being here today. Thanks, Mike, um, Randy for sharing all your thoughts on this and we want to leave you with something positive and powerful for our audience. Um, something that inspires you maybe to go to that extra mile the next time that you're at work, filter out the bad, let in the good, remember to keep improving yourself and do the best that you can Uh, go to that course, listen to that cool podcast, watch that extra procedure at work, learn something new and challenging, pick up an old textbook, um, maybe at least the new edition and look at the clotting cascade who cares be proud of yourself for what you're doing and just know that you can ignore all these trolls that are online that are spewing hate on the computer screen just do your thing Um, and like randy said find a group or a hospital or a clinic or the care center you know that's what matters what they're doing uh, on on the field basically and find good leadership with kind people and and don't waste your things on you can't change just move forward and ignore the noise
1: Oh, I love that, Martha. Yeah, I think that it, moving forward, ignore the noise is the way to go. Let's end with our two-view trivia answer from last episode, and we're going to move on to our question for the next one here. Last month, we asked you kind of a mouthful of a trivia question, and the question was the following: Who was the president of the United States that signed the Needlestick Safety and Prevention Act into law, and who was the Massachusetts nurse whose advocacy for sharps injury safety? helped the act pass, and who later became the president of the ANA. The president was Bill Clinton, and the nurse involved was Karen Daly.
0: All right, well, the winner this month is Sean Reynolds from Pennsylvania. And Sean Reynolds is a PA, and we are going to get him a, I think he chose to do one of the pain management guides, so we're going to get him his own copy of that. So thanks, Sean. And our question this month, for those of you that want to play, is we have two upcoming boot camps this year so far. And if you got this question correct, you're not even going to believe this. This is crazy. Even Randy, this is this is crazy for us. You get to come to the course for free any boot camp this year and get CME. Now, you have to pay for your own airfare, your hotel, your friends, all your own meals, um, but we might buy you drinks. Mike and I might buy them for you in the Diamond Lounge one night.
1: I thought drinks were free in the Diamond Lounge.
0: Yeah, anyway, um, drinks are on Randy. Anyways, here's the question.
1: (laughs) Name the MD and nurse practitioner duo who came together, found a need in healthcare, Created a solution and supported each other by creating the first nurse practitioner program back in the day. And tell us what nurse practitioner specialty was the team's focus. Email us your guesses at twoviewcast at gmail.com. That's the number two viewcast at gmail.com and tell us who you want us to give a shout-out to on the air. Hopefully, we'll see that one lucky winner and some other people in Vegas in July. I can't wait.
0: For more information about us and our faculty, including Randy Danielson, visit our website featuring all upcoming courses at www.ccme.org and consider coming to see us in Las Vegas July 11th through 16th and check out all of our home study courses, farm course, heart course, EKG course, imaging boot camps and more. And you can also check out our Associated Procedures Corner website, www.theproceduralist.org, and follow our blog.
1: Well, whether you are a PA or an NP or a physician or any other sort of person here, thank you for listening to this episode of The Two View. You can subscribe and please do rate us. On Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, search for Two View Emergency. That's, again, the number two, View Emergency, and it will come right up. If you like YouTube and want to see the video blog instead, search for Center for Medical Education, and you can catch the video version. Don't forget our website where you can go to X level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we refer to. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple.
0: Thanks again for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us on the Two of you. Have a good day and a great shift.